From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hiya to those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and hey you, those watching the live stream at my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and the faithful and loyal supporters who gather every week without fail in the YouTube live chat. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. TV legend, writer, producer, stand-up comedian, John Barber, the creator of Real People, is here. And, uh, John, we were talking about Dean Martin. You mentioned his producer, uh, Greg Garrison. Turns out, not the nicest of fellows, if I'm remembering correctly. (laughs) Very tough. I and I want to introduce this segment by saying it'll be a wonderful day in the United States, Richard, when all of us can get back to work except Congress. <laughs> so, yes. and, 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 about about uh, uh, great. Okay, I I I am and was ju- just a comic, and I was a regular. I was on Dean's Dean show three times. The third time I was on the show. They did the dress rehearsals in front of a live audience so that they can test the shows. And then they iron out all the kinks and then the audience gets to stay if they, uh, and then they shoot, the, they shoot the actual show or the actual show. Anyway, I'm set for my third appearance on the show. And in the middle of the show, I'm introduced by Dean and I come out and I talk about the fact that, you know, uh, I was being uh, uh, brought to you by the uh, through the courtesy of the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Canadian People. And I said that, you know, my mother was Jewish and my father was Scotch, uh, which just proves you can mix anything with Scotch. But when I was growing up, it was it was really tough because I was the only kid in synagogue with a plaid skull cap. And. <laughs> You don't know how tough it is to play Havana and Gil on the bagpipe. So anyway, I'm getting these students <laughs>, laughs. And Greg stops. He said, hang on, John, I'm coming down. So he came downstairs. He said, could you do something else? And I said, what? I, I said to him, but Greg, you hired me because you saw me do this on, uh, on Merv Griffin's show. And you said you loved it. He said, I do love it. But you know what? I've seen you in a club and you do some political stuff that I think could last a long time. Do you think you could do a topical joke that might last a long time and rerun? Because this show will be big and rerun. I said, will you give me a minute to think of one? He said, yeah. He said, so just forget the Jew stuff. Now, the audience is listening to him talking to me, and they're giggling because they're backstage at show business. Right. So everybody gets deathly quiet while I'm walking around thinking, and it took me about a minute to two minutes to think of what I thought was a really great joke. So I get on the mic. I said, Greg, I'll be right up and I'll tell you the joke. He said, John, I trust you. Go ahead. And the audience is all smiles because they're backstage watching show business in action on Dean's show. So he said, OK, on your mark, John. OK, red light. Roll the video. So I said, I'm I'm looking at the camera, and then I'm looking over the camera at the audience. I said, you know, you've all been reading in the paper about President Johnson's daughter, Linda. And they nod. And I said, you know, she's engaged to an Air Force pilot named Charles Robb. And they all nod again. And I said, uh, and you know that the uh, Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren called President Johnson and said he would like to perform the service. And they all nod. I said, but what the papers don't tell you is what the president said to Earl Warren. And they're all waiting and smiling. He said, well, Earl, I'll tell you, I like the fact that you called, but I, after that Warren report thing, I don't want you performing that service because I don't want to look back in 30 years and find out my daughter ain't married. <laughs> well, Richard. There was the loudest laugh I ever heard in my life. And it was totally unexpected to me and anybody else. As a matter of fact, a half a dozen people literally stood up and applauded. So that meant 
that the American audience did not trust the Warren report, didn't trust the truth of the fact that Oswald could have killed that guy, shot him, and had his body thrown backwards, shooting him from behind, okay? No, I never thought anything about that. I'm just a comic, for God's sake. And so, anyway, the, uh, uh, Greg screams in the phone, cut, cut, stop. And he rushes downstairs, and he comes down with a guy with a blue suit. And the guy, he introduces him from standards and practices. He says, you're not doing that uh, one report joke. And I said, but I'm not saying anything that you heard what the, the biggest laugh I've ever had. They said they don't care. NBC supports the Warren Report, and you're not doing that. I said, but I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying there was a conspiracy. You're not doing it. So anyway, Greg puts up his hands, and he announces to the audience, John's going to do the Jew stuff. And so that's what I ended up doing. But what it revealed to me was that there was an undercurrent in the United States and probably more so around the world where they're a lot smarter about these things, that there was something very suspicious and distrustful about the government of the United States, which certainly turned out to be true. But I didn't even know that at the time. And then there also another story about Greg Garrison. After that show, uh, and I got an ovation from the audience for my Jew jokes, an ovation I didn't deserve. It wasn't that funny, but they appreciated what I had done earlier. And Greg asked me to come up to his office privately. And I swear to God, I was so happy because I thought he's going to offer me a show of my own. That's what I was sure of when I walked into the office. So he asked me to sit down. And I was waiting for the contract to do a bunch more shows or even get my own show. And he says to me, John, you know, my favorite women are brunettes. And more favorite than that is that they're Mexican. And I knew what he was saying because my wife is Mexican. She was a stunning brunette, looked like Jennifer Jones, for God's sake. And I knew what he was going to say. So he says to me, would you mind if I asked your wife for a date? Oh, my gosh. And I said, Greg, I don't know why you're asking me this and not my wife. Because with your reputation, I know that you womenize and with, and had these adulterous fairs all around town. It's all over town. I'm sure you don't call up the husbands who are writers and producers and actors and ask permission. You just make the phone call. So don't be talking to me. Talk to my wife. And he said, you don't mind if I talk to my wife? I said, no, it's not up to me. It's up to my wife. If she wants to date you, she date you. If she doesn't want to date you, she won't date you, okay? But I can't answer for her. So are you done with me? I get up to leave and I get to the exit. I turn around. Oh, I said, by the way, Greg, do you think you're more attractive than Frank Sinatra? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, my wife, Sarita, used to sing with the Earl Hines Orchestra. And Sinatra was there many times whenever he got to San Francisco to listen to her sing because he loved Earl Hines and tried to date her twice. And twice she turned him down. So if you think you're a better man than Francis, be my guest. He oh, never, my word. He never called my wife. And I never got to do the Dean Martin show again. Now, this is how... I ended up on The Tonight Show with Frank Sinatra. I get a call from Francis, and he says, uh, hey, kid, <laughs> call me kid, I'm 46 or 47 now. Hey, kid, how would you like to be on The Dean Martin Show again? They're roasting me, and you're the first guy I asked for. And I said, uh, well, uh, well, I, I, I wouldn't be so sure about that, Francis. He said, what are you kidding? He's my buddy. He calls me back three hours later. And he says, what on earth did you do to my buddy? And what on earth did you do to Garrison? I said, I didn't do anything. I said, my wife didn't do anything either. Maybe that's the reason. Well, he howled. <laughs> and so... He said, well, I'm going to have something better for you. We're going to do something, damn it. He said, I'm going to get you as my opening act somewhere. 
sometime. And then he called me later that day and he said, I got it. And I said, well, you got what? He said, you're on. And I said, I'm on what? He said, I'm doing the Tonight Show and you're the first person I'm booking. Now, Johnny Carson tried to sabotage it. And I don't want to get too much into that unless one of your guests asks. But in any event, I uh, got to, that's how I got to do the uh, the Tonight Show. Because he also did not was not that fond of Carson. He knew the difficulty that I had with with Carson. And so that's what happened. Now, if you go to my site, you can see uh, Sinatra in uh, that episode, johnbarbersworld.com. And you will also see me roasting Red Fox. And the reason Red Fox came about, because Francis called me and could not believe that he could not get me on Dean's show when Red Fox could. And he asked me what had happened. And I said, well, Francis, you know, when I started in this business, Red Fox was my mentor. My wife, who sang for Oline's orchestra, knew all the black performers. That's why Dick Gregory did my liner notes. That's why I got to know Red Fox. My wife said, he's filthy, but he's funny, and he's somebody you should know, because he never bombs in front of an audience, even if there are eight people there. So we became, he became my first friend, and, and he was the only lifelong friend I ever had in show business. And when I got my first variety show, even though it was local in Los Angeles, I gave Red Fox his first appearance on television where he could entertain, and it led to Sanford and Son. And they call it Sanford and Son because his real name is John Sanford. You can also see that. But anyway, I'm explaining to Francis. I said, Red is my dearest friend, and he was my mentor. And he got a call from Greg Garrison because, you know, you'd done the, you were the king, of course, and they're going to call you to roast you first because you and Dean are friends. Dean let Greg run the show. And, you know, that's really nice that Dean kept his word, even though he had to turn you down. I said, but when Red Fox was called, Red Fox said, I want Johnny Barber to be on the Diaz to roast me. And uh, Garrison said, no way, and hung up. And Red called him back. And he said, wait a minute, don't hang up in my face. What do you mean Johnny Barber's not coming on? And he says he's never coming on this show again. And then Red said, well, find yourself another nigger. Oh, dear. Oh, and dear. so uh, Greg Garrison had no no choice but to put Red Fox on because Red was the biggest comic in America at the time. And there I am. And it's a really, really more entertaining story when you get to the book because all of the other guys on the dais had their jokes written for them. I wrote my own material. There you go. I and, just want to just interject. It, yeah. you were, he was, uh, John Barber was quoting Red Fox there, folks. That was Red Fox's yes, yes, saying that. Yes. All right. Uh, I, gotta, I want to get back to Dean Martin here for a second because sure. there's another very touching story that really shows the – uh, the, 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 such the, uh, a warmth and, and loyalty of Dean Martin that has to do with your young son at the time yeah. uh, and, and, and playing a round of golf. Tell, tell oh us about that. Oh, my gosh. I had forgot. Oh, my God. You know, and about 10 years ago, I was thinking about that because my son was older now when he was an executive producer at Criminal Lines or one of those shows in Hollywood. And I was looking at an old video of my son. Oh, my God. He was the Caucasian Tiger Woods. Shot his first competitive of 69 when he was 13 years of age against Phil Mickelson. Won the Canadian National when he was 15. But when he was four and six, he was on the news long before Tiger Woods was ever ever on the news. And one day I'm at Riviera with my son and Lucille Ball comes over and said, oh God, I just gave Ricky's clubs away to somebody else. They would have been perfect for your boy. And I said, well, thank you. And so she left. And then Dean came by because he saw Lucille and saw my son and watched him. Now, Dean played golf every day at Riviera Country Club. And he played against two guys who were literally golf hustlers. And they would say their handicap was four or six, when really, really they're scratch. Every day, Dean Martin lost one to $2,000, seven days a week. And he could afford it, wasn't it? But he loved golf. 
And anyway, he sees Christopher, who's six. And he said, can I watch you hit balls? And Christopher's hitting balls. And yes, sir. And no, sir. And, and then Dean says, how would you like to play golf with me? And my son turned around and looked at me. And I said, yeah, son, certainly. I hadn't had the foggiest idea what Dean had in mind. So he picked my son up and put him in the cart and drove off. And so these guys said, hey, Dean, we're playing. And Dean says, tomorrow, today I'm playing with a kid. And here's what he did. He went to the very first tee. My son hit his ball 25 or 30 yards. Dean hit his 200 yards. He'd drive out, pick up my son's ball, and drop it at the 200-yard marker. My son would get out and take his three wood and hit his three wood maybe 18 yards. Dean would hit his 175. He continued for 18 holes of golf until he had finished an entire round of golf. And I was looking at a video 10 years ago, and I thought, oh, my God, i got to send Dean a letter. So I sent Dean a letter. Now, Dean lost his son, his favorite son, in an airplane crash. His son crashed, joined the service, and crashed a jet into the San Bernardino Mountains, and he was quite never the same after that. He didn't like to travel with Francis anymore. He'd go for one or two nights and then come back and just stay in the house or go by himself to the golf course. So I decided to sit down and write a letter. And I halfway through the letter, and the news came on that Dean Martin had died. Right, right. Just, it broke my heart. It literally broke me my heart because I know he would have loved to have received the letter. Uh, you were you were being um, sort of groomed to take over for Merv Griffin. Yeah, what happened? What I happened? Was, I was under I was under contract to uh, to Westinghouse, and it happened. Uh, well, my wife was pregnant, by the way. Uh, when Merv left Westinghouse, he was signed to go to CBS and do his late night show against Johnny Carson. And he called me and he said, I've recommended you to be my replacement at Westinghouse. And, uh, of course I was thrilled. That was my dream. That was my dream to be the next Jack Parr, have a talk show. Cause there were so many interesting people to talk to and people that audience should, should hear from. And I had a knack for finding them because I was a storyteller and I knew great stories and people who could tell the great stories. So I was looking forward to that. And so uh, the one night that I hosted the entire show, my ratings were as good as Merv's. And I thought it was a slam dunk to get the show. But McGannon, who was the president of Westinghouse and his program director, were uh, Anglophiles and they loved David Frost. And one of the reasons they loved David Frost is when they went to visit him in London, Dave took him to 10 Downing Street in Buckingham Palace. And when I heard that they were negotiating with him, I called them and I said, listen, why don't you guys get four other guys and put them under contract and do a Scarlett O'Hara? And I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Selznick shut down, gone with the wind because he couldn't find Scarlett O'Hara. He hadn't discovered Vivian Lee yet. I said, everybody knows Merv's leaving. Hold a talent contest for the next host. Give me one night and the other guys their night, and I'll leave it up and let the American public vote on who would be his replacement. I said, you'll have monster ratings. They signed David Frost. And as a result of that, I got a call from the president of uh, Metro Media, Chuck Young in L.A. He said, you know, we want to hire you to do a poor man's tonight show because they think frost is going to bomb and we want to give you a variety show and uh and we want you under contract when he bombs well he didn't bomb right away it took him about a year to bomb before they they finally got rid of him it was too late and that's why i happened to put red fox on but one funny story about that does the name harlan ellison ring a bell to you at all Har- harlan was a tough tv critic Oh my God! The, the harshest, the harshest. He, he not well harsh, but by far the best. He, yeah. he and a, a fellow in uh, Chicago were the two best. Uh, Gary Deeb was his name. Gary Deeb had the greatest line about American television. He said, "American television is the only business in the country where competition does not improve the product." And <laughs> he is so right. But anyway, Harlan, Harlan Ellison. 
is by far one of the great science fiction writers in the world, along with Nabokov and a few other really great science fiction. He wrote one of the some of the best Star Treks, and I mean, unbelievable. As a matter of fact, he wrote The Terminator. And The Terminator was a short story that was stolen by Paramount Pictures and turned into the movie with Schwarzenegger. And, and Harlan was so tough, he was going to sue his agent, his manager, his publicist, and his wife. And the whole town said, don't sue because you'll never work in this town again. He sued Paramount <laughs> and he won and he took half of his winnings, which were monstrous, got a huge billboard up at Sunset in Delaney, and it said, I beat the bastards, and he never was out of work after that. Well, that- I've got to take a break here, John, but uh, uh, when we come back, I know Harlan wasn't uh, particularly kind to you in some oh, of his no, reviews, well, but he wasn't at all. But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get you to tell that story on the other side. John Barber, my guest, johnbarbersworld.com is the website. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Back with John Barber. And, uh, John, I promise in the next segment, we're going to get down to your, we're going to get to your lockdown song. Uh, in, <laughs> there's a short segment coming up, but we, uh, we have that ready to go. Uh, but back to, uh, let's see, we were talking about Harlan Ellison. Yeah, Harlan Ellison. Yeah, Harlan Ellison won numerous, numerous awards as a writer. Absolutely brilliant. And he wrote uh, a uh, television column for the Free Press in Los Angeles, which was the most read column in Hollywood, more so than Variety or Report or anything like that, because it was Harlan Ellison. It was called The Glass Teat, T-E-A-T. I mean, a, a brilliant title and deservedly so. And he wrote, well, anyway, he happened to review my appearance on the Merv Griffin show and he called me gay called me a fag and he wanted to know how come Westinghouse found this fag to replace Merv Griffin who was also gay by the way but he kept it in a closet for a long time and uh, I was shocked when I saw it but it was written so funny and so smartly I couldn't help finish reading the whole thing anyway I get this call from Chuck Young Chuck Young was a guy that put the first angry man in America on television. His name was Joe Pine. Uh, oh, my God. Brilliant, brilliant. And nobody knows of him today, but he was America's first Howard Beale. Mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. So anyway, I'm the second guy that Chuck Young hires to do this show. And aside from wanting to put Red Fox on the show and give him a break, I say to my producer, his name's Bill Walker very successful local producer. I said, you know, the most important thing in the world to me is television. Edward R. Murrow said years ago, it's the umbilical cord that feeds the world. It can either nourish the world or starve the world. Well, it nourished the world in the 50s, and now it's starving the world. But at the time, there, were, there was hope for television. There's no longer any hope for television. It's all, it's all, it's all, all dead. And that's, why, and that's why it's called medium, because to have anything on it <laughs> is rare and is never well done. So in, in any event, I said, I want somebody on who can talk about television, and I want them on every week to review what's coming up and suggest to people what to watch. He said, well, there's nobody like that. And I said, Harlan Ellison. He said, you don't want to hire him. The guy hates you. He thinks you're a fruitcake. I said, I don't care. He's funny. Book him. And and Bill says, I'm not going to call him. I said, well, I'll call him. I, I called the Writers Guild, and the Writers Guild wouldn't give me his name they said they'd forward a message now so i just looked in the white pages and there was his name harlan ellison i picked it up phone up he answered on the first ring very gruff voice yeah like that and i said harlan ellison he said yeah i said this is john barber oh shit and then i said oh no you already said that in the article oh geez yeah it's a family show john even though it's late Oh, 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 well, then, then bleep it. It'll make it, it'll make it more salacious for your listeners. Right. So, but in any event, I said, you already said that in the article. 
And I said, Harlan, can you talk as well as you write? He said, what a stupid question. I said, no, it's not a stupid question for my purposes. He said, what are your purposes? I said, Chuck Young has just hired me to do a late night show because in spite of what you said about me hosting my own show, Chuck Young thinks that Frost will bomb and that they'll have me under contract. I would like to have somebody on every week to talk about television, and I'd prefer it be you if you can speak as well as you can write. I said, it only pays minimum, but, you know, you'd be like a, a regular if you if you would want to do it. And he said, are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm very serious. He said, well, I'm not going to change my mind about you. I said, I'm not <laughs> asking you to. As a matter of fact, if you come on the air and put me down, I'll defend myself, okay? And we'll have a feud on the air. I don't care. It's great television. So he shows up. Now, what happens is everybody in town knows Harlan Ellison is going to be on my first show. Now, I'm not as well known as Harlan, but I'm not, the ratings were terrific. So Monday after the show, I get a call from Chuck Young. And Chuck says, John, I'm, I'm stunned. You did really well. I love the show. I love the content. I'm really pleased with what you're doing. And he said, the whole town was watching. He said, but you never guess. You just left my office. And I said, who? He said, Harlan Ellison. I said, terrific. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, Chuck, give a guy a show. I mean, he is really, he's really verbal. He's really smart. And he deserves to have a show. He says, uh, no, I'm not giving him a show. And I said, why not? And Chuck says, because he wants yours. He thinks you're useless. <laughs> so now I say that because I want to explain to something. I am a performer who probably has a non-existent ego. I didn't get into this business for fame or fortune to look for that. Richard, I got in the business to look for myself. I didn't even know who I was. I'm looking, when I do a talk show, look at all the famous people I get to talk to. Maybe I'll learn some secrets about their lives or how they survived misfortunes that were worse than mine and still survived. I was looking for a reason to be alive or something to be alive about. And that's why I love doing talk shows. And that's why I love telling stories and why I love listening to stories. So, but that being said, it also shows what a fan of talent and intellect I am. Even if I don't like them, one of the most despicable people I ever met in person was Mort Saul. Yes. And that story is in my book. But one of the most brilliant people I ever met was also Mort Saul. I can separate the personal Mort Saul from the professional Mort Saul. So I made it a point to keep on hiring Harlan Ellison. And every show that I must have had six or eight local talk shows from which I was constantly fired. And the first person I ever booked on the show was always Harlan Ellison, and if you go to my site, johnbarbersworld.com, you can Google, I did a two-week late-night show on ABC that was the equal to, uh, uh, who was the guy that used to do the CBS, Letterman. Yeah. My ratings were equal to Letterman, and Bristol Myers was going to pay for the show, and ABC wouldn't have to spend a nickel, but they thought I was too controversial to put on television because I tried to book people like Jim Garrison. Let so, me ask you about Harlan Ellison. Did he ever warm up to you after you showed such loyalty to him? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, whenever I called, he was always, he'd drop everything to come and do the show because he thought he was doing me a favor, which he was. But not <laughs> only that. People like Frank Zappa started to call me because they thought, oh, my God, here's somebody smart on television. Can I come and be a part of your smartness? And if you go, let me tell you, something. I have a, a webmaster who lives in Thailand. He inherited $500,000 five years ago. He left the country because he thought Hillary was going to become president, moved to Thailand. And he's still my webmaster. Eight months ago, he said to me, John, didn't you do a, a show with Frank Zappa? I said, yeah, he was on my late night show on ABC. He said, do you still have that tape somewhere? And I said, well, 
I'm not sure, but my son said I have. I must have it somewhere. My son knows everything about what I do. Well, I found it, and he said, send it to me. I said, hold it. Frank died 15 years ago. Who wants to listen to Frank now? And he said, listen, John, the Internet is my business. And I'm telling you, people want to still listen to people like Frank Zappa, even when they're speaking from the grave. Eight months ago, I sent him the tape. I reposted it yesterday because in 1986, when I interviewed him, he said the toughest thing to be in America is to be bright. Americans do not like bright people. It is more valid today than it was then. So I reposted it. Do you know how many views it's had, Richard, in eight months? A couple of million? 177,000. which is that's pretty good. That's pretty darn good. I mean, that's astonishing because, you know, I only have eight or 9,000 subscribers. I don't have as many, many, and I don't look for subscribers. I just do this because I I enjoy doing it. And, you know, I can't, years ago in the 50s and 60s, I could point, I could name 50 people, men and women of all stripes, all sexual persuasions, all political persuasions, all religious persuasions, all whom I admire because of their intellect and their ability to tell a story and why they believe in what they believe. There is not one person on American television today who is articulate. When I got into television, you had to have a modicum of talent, a modicum of intellect, and some personality. These are three things that we would keep you unemployed in America. I mean, <laughs> real people in its day it was like opening a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild wine. Superb wine, but if you leave wine out for 30 years, it turns to vinegar. And the only talent you need today to be a reality star is an absence of shame. American That's true. television That's true. American television and is, is an absolute disgrace. And almost everything about America, I must tell you, is a disgrace. So, but in, in, in any event, a couple of things about this lockdown business. The, what is going to be difficult for most people, most people, to find out the worst company they have when they're locked down is themselves. <laughs> yeah. They're going to have to finally face themselves and one of the good things that can come out of this is they're going people are going to suddenly realize that there are a lot of things and a lot of people that they can do without so when this is over and it will be over because as the bible says this too shall pass when it's over if these people only focus on the things that they enjoy and on the people that they enjoy and are not with things and people just to pass the time, but just with those things and people that give them joy. They will become the happiest people on the planet because they will discover the happiness that was originally inside them. Indeed. I got to take a time out, John. We'll be back more with John Barber right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. A uh, a quick programming note. Next week, uh, Thomas Carey and uh, Don Schmidt, the Roswell investigators, will be uh, here for the full two hours. They have a, a brand new book. Uh, it's the, uh, the Roswell UFO Incident Pictorial. And... Uh, just uh, some amazing images. I know it's radio, uh, but um, we'll, we'll talk, obviously, about uh, their uh, decades-long investigation into the Roswell UFO incident. And, uh, oh, I said the full two hours. Actually, no. They'll be on for the first hour. The second hour, Preston Dennett, another ufologist, will, will be uh, on the program to talk about onboard UFO encounters. So UFOs pillar to post next week on The Conspiracy Show. John Barber stays with us for a few moments yet. The uh, The book is Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of a Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. And uh, John, I know uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, that you used to open for Bobby Darren in Las Vegas. Yes. 
And uh, you have a uh, a little parody song I'd like you to set up, and we'll play that. <laughs> okay, quick question. How much actual airtime do we have? Uh, we have about uh, four minutes here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's not enough, because I had a couple of really funny, funny stories. Oh, so we can do those after the break. But we'll, I mean, this segment is about, we have about four oh, minutes. So you can oh, set four, up and play the song. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um when I, I was doing Real People, one of the guys I hired was a fellow named Mark Russell, a great piano player, but he was also a great satirist. He used to write very funny political songs. I don't know if you remember his name, and you wouldn't I remember him. I remember. No, I remember Mark Russell. Okay, there yes. you go. Do you remember a guy named Tom Lehrer? My Tom? chemistry teacher used to play his records in high school. Oh, there you go. Well, Tom Lehrer out of Harvard University did the same. And long before that, a Danish pianist by the name of uh, Victor Borga. And I always admired these talents. Now, when I was opening for Bobby Darren at the Sands Hotel, in between shows, I would write funny lyrics to some of his songs. And and I would sing them. To, and he loved it. So when we would go to his beach house and go down there and we'd have these parties, he'd have me introduce me and we'd play them and, and he'd play and I'd sing. And it was it was a hit. So anyway, the other night I was listening to once again, Bobby do Mac the Knife and Mac the Knife. Nobody does it like him. Not Sinatra, not Ella Fitzgerald. And thinking about how much I missed Bobby and how much I loved him. We were the last act at the Sands before they tore it down. Anyway, these I thought about him. And these lyrics that you're about to hear instantly popped into my head. Now, I'm not a piano player like Mark Russell. And I can't sing like any, anybody. But I did it because I think Bobby would have loved it. And I think some people will get a kick out of it. So this is John Barber sings about lockdown. All right, take it away, Carlos. Oh, this virus. Carlos, are you there? Lockdown just with my wife. Food on the shelf. But my wife says, stay six feet, dear. Keep your washed hands to yourself. It's a bummer. What can I do? I feel sexy what happened to Carlos? and so lewd. But the, song the is government we can't says hear no do oh, that here. <laughs> Just <laughs> by People can hear it, but we, you and I can't hear it. We oh, get God, screwed. That's so you haven't heard I it? Watch TV. Yeah, I have. No, we need to stop. because uh, Anyway, he's and playing. In the okay. breaks, what do I see? Selling products I cannot buy Even shit for my ED I fear the streets There's much bad news But preachers say This too shall pass A man shot his friend For toilet paper Just to wipe his ass I must get out get fresh air I must do what the president said I want out Easter but damn CNN just said Bonnie's dead all right there we go uh, John and I couldn't actually hear the song playing. I did hear it earlier, though. So that's uh, John Barber's uh, tribute to uh, Bobby Darren's version of Mac the Knife. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have heard it. Oh, my God, I haven't heard it since it first aired. So I'm going to have to listen to the rebroadcast of your show just to find out how it sounds on, on, real, on real Internet rather than my stuff anyway so you know living in i said i said you know people are going to have a tough time discovering themselves the other thing is that you know in america 75 percent of all people working who are married have to hold two jobs a husband has to hold a job the wife has to hold a job so what is going to have to happen is now a lot of them are forced to stay home because you know they're, tr- they're supporting two kids two cars and a house and i'll tell you what's going to happen Divorces are going to spread faster than the disease, and in a few lucky cases in nine months, there might be more people in, in, in the country 
But I think that soon husbands and wives, with the shift out, a lot of couples, uh, uh, Richard, are going to discover that sex is just a temporary vaccine against boredom. And uh, I have a, a funny story from a golf. They shut down the golf courses. And the only golf course is a golf course. How much time do we have in this segment? Uh, I think we I think we should probably save this till uh, after the break. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll head into a break. John Barber, he's uh, he's added uh, song parody master to his long list of credits, and uh, we'll come back on the other side and talk more about the lockdown, real people, and uh, other things right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Just a few moments remain with John Barber, johnbarbersworld.com. And uh, just uh, just let's spend a few moments. I know you want to finish up with uh, some, some lockdown observations, and then I want to ask you about uh, Jim Garrison and the time that remains. Well, first off, I just want to say what a lovely day to be a bank robber. I mean, you could walk into bank in Nova Scotia with a mask and nobody's going to say anything. And you go up to the teller and you say, give me all your money or I'll sneeze on you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you a couple of lighter stories rather than get in. And then I'll close with some comments about Jim, Jim, Jim Garrison. A lady friend of mine is retired and her husband, they're quite well to do. And her husband spends all his time uh, playing poker. Goes to the casinos every day and plays poker, or wins or loses, it doesn't matter. That's how he spends his time with his five buddies. So what his wife did, she built a poker table in their house. So they're good in there, and they're social distancing. And they're sitting around the poker table, and they're playing poker for hours. And guess what they're playing with? What? Rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have another woman she's really funny and i and she's telling me the truth because she sent the pictures you know it is very tough to get masks i mean hospitals can't even get masks you can't get them at any of the drugstores she has a 12 year old son and a 14 year old son and 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 guess what they made masks out of toilet paper no they're hockey jock straps. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord. Yeah, that would work. I could see that working. And then, and then I have a friend of mine, Jeff Peterson. He's a, a golfing friend of mine. He's quite quite well-to-do. And, of course, it, it, it has to stay home with his uh, wife. And they've been practicing social distancing for years. <laughs> but anyway, they're locked down now. And they're not getting along. So he said he... They went to a marriage counselor. Of course, they had the six feet, six feet in front of the marriage counselor and six feet apart. And all his wife does is complain about even now that Jeff is the totally the unsexiest, least erotic, least masculine man she's ever known. He never kisses her passionately or anything. Said whereupon the psychiatrist got up and walked around and grabbed his wife and tilted her head back and gave her the biggest French kiss right on the mouth, which he said his wife seemed to enjoy a lot. And then very matter-of-factly, the psychiatrist goes back and he sits down and he says, now, can you at least do that three times a week? And Jeff said, well, I can bring her in Monday and I can bring in Wednesday, but Friday I'm going fishing. (laughs) (laughs) In any event, about Jim Garrison, all you need to know about Mr. Garrison, and I may have told you this story before, I hope that, that when this, I only hope this is over, I hope it's over so everybody can get back, it'll never be as it was before, people say, uh, let's get back to normal, and I posted on Facebook a question to them, to which I got almost a thousand replies. Does anyone actually believe that after November 22nd, 1963, the United States was ever normal? Excellent not, point. Not one could answer in the affirmative. And there are a lot of reasons why this will not be changed. 
America needs to be changed systematically, and it will not be changed in the voting booth. Mark my words, uh, I hope I get to come back to you again later, and I'll explain to you how and why there is only one way that this society can become more human and more successful. But well, I Mil- Milton Friedman said uh, that, there's, uh, that real change only happens as a result of a crisis, either real or perceived. And we can talk uh, at some point, too, is, you know, at, at what parts of this crisis are real. You know what it's and- to me? I, was at the, I heard you open the show today talking about going to the market and have, having to stand in line. We have supermarkets here in town that are as big as airport hangers, for Christ's sake. And then they're only allowing 100 people in at a time. I went yesterday morning to go to Albertsons, one of our bigger markets. I have to stand outside with a security card, uh, a, a guard there. On the sidewalk, our footprints in red were supposed to stand, and we wait to go in. And after we're in, there's a line to get out. And you know what it seems like to me, Richard? What's that? It seems to me that the United States declared war on itself. It seems to me that the 1% staged a sneak attack on the 99%. And the 99% never fired a shot and just stayed home. Yes, we're being pushed around. And uh, what's, what's very disturbing is how how all of us really are so quick to acquiesce and to cower in our homes. I mean, we're a free people. And I no, believe we're that. Not. Well, uh, let, listen, listen to me. You know, I have, I have 5,000 friends. All you're allowed on Facebook and half of them are Trump supporters and half of them are Trump haters. I, you know, as long as they don't swear at one another, like you wouldn't let me swear earlier in your show. And as long as they're not rude to another one another, I absolutely and totally believe in a free press and in free speech. Okay. And, and, and it's proven if you look at anybody who posts on my site, there are all kinds of wacky theories and conspiracy theories. I, I let them talk with it. To me, it's all over with. John, Jim Garrison solved the case. It's a cold case already already in the Justice Department. When they open that, they will unravel everything that's wrong in this country. Now, the Trump supporters who think that he's been sent by God to save the system or change the system or improve the system, there are two things I keep telling my supporters that he has not done and he could do. The first thing that he has to do, they talk about the Fed. The Federal Reserve is a private bank. Mm-hmm. And I said, he, they say he's going to take over the Fed. And I said, well, he can do that without an army. He can just use his pen because all he has to do is reverse the Communications Act signed by Bill Clinton, the worst president in American history, that put 95 percent of our media into the hands of six corporations. But he hasn't done it yet. Um, uh, that comes to the free press. And when it comes to the Fed, John Kennedy printed money in 1963. He was out to destroy the Fed because it, in 1963, if you borrowed money, you paid them back 21%. And the Constitution calls for the Treasury to print money. So he printed silver certificates. And it was Executive Order 11110. And I have some of those silver certificates. And that would have put these private bankers out of business. I'll tell you why. Donald Trump has not reversed the Communications Act. He keeps calling them the fake news. Right? Right, right. Why doesn't he do something about it? Indeed. Well, in terms of the Fed. I'll tell you why he doesn't. Okay. And I'm just speculating. Right. Because my business is real people. He needs an enemy. And without, and preachers need a hell. I know you're a Christian, but without a hell, there's, there's no, there is no heaven for you to go to church and pray about and make some fake minister a mega millionaire again when you could stay home and read the Bible as Jesus Christ told you to. Jesus never told you to go to a temple. He threw the money money changers out of the temple. Buy a Bible and stay home. You don't have to go and gather. The church is God. Jesus said that God is within you. And it's not in any building. 
We have 20 mega millionaire preachers in this country who are fakes who run around with hookers, for God's sake. And they don't even have. Now, what Donald Trump needs is an enemy. But if he restores, when John Kennedy was killed, there were 1,500 owners of the press. Uh, if he restores a free press, you're going to have people actually reporting on the doings of Donald Trump that he doesn't want reported, whatever they may be. They will because people who are anti-Trump need a platform too. But this way, he can control these six, and he has not signed an executive order to, to have the Treasury print any money because he also needs the Federal Reserve to be an enemy. This system will not change in the voting booth. Do you know how the Vietnam War ended? Well, you tell me, John. We've got about a, we've got about thirty seconds here, so okay, we need to wrap it ended up. On the streets of Chicago, people voted on the streets with their feet. That is the only way that this system will change. It is corrupt from bottom to end, and has been for a hundred years, and since it was founded by committing genocides on the Indians that used to own this land. And every Indian was a communist. Nobody owned land. They didn't even know what land was. It was the introduction of private property and unfettered and unchecked capitalism. Greed is destroying the planet. And we are the capital of greed. We have murdered every president and peacemaker in this country. And we've invaded 30 countries since the end of the Second World War to change their socialist people's Republics that the new ones are trying to build. John, I'm out of time. Always a delight. Glad we ended on a happy high note. (laughs) I don't know that we did, but the one reason, aside from everybody getting back to their lives, I want to get back to Toronto to see you again and to see Deborah Knight and to do some real book signings at Indigo. All right. I look forward to that, John. Thank you so much. John Barber, johnbarbersworld.com. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the road. Just time enough to say so long.